You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a uh, podcast about video games, the narrative power of the storytelling of video games, and uh, really kind of a freewheeling discussion about whatever it is that we want to talk about that day. Um, And today, I'm very excited to announce that this is uh, the revamp the I think we're in 3.0, the version of With a Terrible Fates podcast. Dan, I'm um, sorry. Can, can I interrupt you before you dive too into it? I wish uh, you would. You should, we, should, we should probably still introduce ourselves, though. I was getting to it. I was getting to oh, it. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have doubted you. That's on me. I'm no. Sorry. So on that note, I'm I'm Dan Hughes, <laughs> uh, an analyst on withaterriblefate.com. And with me is... Yes, I'm Aaron Saduko, the uh, the the prematurely excited founder of What the Terrible Fate, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And Dan, you should probably start calling yourself the host now, uh, given our, our reconfiguration. Yeah, we'll figure it out. It's yeah, we'll they, it. they all know me at this point. <laughs> That's um, true. Well, yes, I am. Uh, I am your intrepid host. Um, and uh, today we are going to be uh, diving into the sort of. I guess new pseudo new rethought revamped version of with a terrible face podcast. Um, for those of you who uh, listened to Aaron and I um, at the start of this podcast endeavor, when we had the drawing board, um, that is more or less what this is going to be. Um, we uh, are going to be kind of um, providing supplemental material for our written works. Um, and then a little less frequently than prior podcasts, we will be coming together to discuss general topics about video games um, that we find interesting and want to talk about. These topics are things like the word immersion and why it's uh, an unwieldy term, or we may want to talk about um, the way that, you know, uh, role-playing has evolved in video games, just sort of these general things that speak to the narrative power of video games and um, how we would like to view them through those different lenses. Or, you know, it's October next month, so we may want to talk about something spooky, or you especially may want to I talk will, about something spooky. <laughs> I will definitely talk about something spooky. <laughs> yes, very much looking forward to it. But today, um, we're talking about something that is not spooky, uh, at least not on the surface. Um, Aaron has recently written an article about Final Fantasy IX um, that we are going to dive into today. Uh, this recording will actually be found on the page um, as a sort of supplemental recording that you can listen to. And I think the best way to think about these are sort of the director's commentary tracks uh, for our written works. So I'm going to ask Aaron about this article in particular. Um, and kind of pick his brain about how the article came about and why he wanted to talk about it. Um, but more importantly, Aaron, I want to talk about this, which is you had never played Final Fantasy IX prior to this endeavor with this article. Is that correct? I know. It's embarrassing. Um, I I think as I've gotten a little bit older, I've gotten uh, simultaneously more ashamed and more comfortable with uh, my my gaps in like classic gaming history. Uh, ashamed because I recognize I should fill them, but uh, open with being able to admit that I have those gaps and actually make the effort to fill them. So, so some of those are things like the classic Final Fantasy titles. Um and so I, I worked through nine and uh, it was, yeah, shocker. Like when people watch Breaking Bad for the first time or <laughs> read Dante's Commedia, right? Turns out uh, there's something about this work that's pretty good. <laughs> Maybe we yes. should tell people about it. <laughs> they know their stuff, that Square Enix. Well, I think that um, it's uh, not an uncommon feeling with this game, I think, because the final fantasy landscape is such an interesting one because people will latch on to usually the one that they played first as being their favorite and the one that they consider the best. And I think that, um, when people do that, they let the others kind of fall by the wayside a little bit. Mm. I don't think that's what happened with you necessarily, but I do think like when you talk about final fantasy with people, it's rare that you're talking to somebody who's really played all of them and has gone into them in like great depth that maybe each of them deserves. So I'm excited to hear about your initial thoughts that led to this article when you did a deep dive into Final Fantasy IX. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, 
with series that have a lot of tropes or archetypes in common across the different titles, it is so easy to just um, impose your view of the first one you play on the rest of them, right? Uh, I'm, I'm actually even going through something similar to that right now with Namco's uh, Tales series, right? Because mm. listeners might know uh, that series is near and dear to my heart. Uh, and I'm, I'm loving Tales of Arise as I'm playing it, but I would definitely say... Well, not definitely, but I would probably say that my favorite in the series is Tales of Symphonia, which was the first one that I played. And, and given the similarity across the titles that typically aren't related by plot, very similar to the Final Fantasy structure, it's it's very easy to just impose your views on, in my case, Tales of Symphonia, the first one I played on the other games as, as kind of a, a paradigm for understanding what's going on in the others. But yeah, it was, it was nice. I, I think in part by virtue of the the amount of time it took me to get to Final Fantasy IX, I really did feel like I was seeing it in its own light. And I I got right away uh, why people who are fans of this game love it so much and so passionately, and also why, uh, as some people mentioned to me at PAX West when I was talking about it, uh, some people have stayed away with it because it just seems on the surface so damn convoluted. And so uh, I, I wanted to write an article in part that could adjudicate those two things. It's interesting because I do think that um, nine was a big hit in Japan when it came out, but I I have this sort of sense and I kind of remember the time a little bit too, but I have this sense that when nine came out, so seven was a smash hit success and it took the world by storm and basically changed video games. And then eight came along (laughs) and uh, the less I say about that, probably the better. And then, Um, nine kind of snuck out. It it feels like where Japan had this big push. It was very big over there, but, um, I think it was kind of like over, uh, it was shadowed by final fantasy 10, which came Mm -hmm. out shortly thereafter over here. And I think was a lot of people's first final fantasy and, and became very important to them. So nine is this kind of fun sleeper hit that I would put in the, in the same category as five where it's it's not a whole lot of people's favorite but it's really really good and well, it's, I it's think funny you have a experience yeah I, I think I totally did um Final Fantasy X is so iconic right not just in terms of being the the first Final Fantasy for many gamers but also like just in terms of game history, right? I mean, it starts with Tita saying, listen to my story. And that line has so many different meanings, but one of the most salient ones in terms of how it was developed was it was, it was the first properly voice acted final fantasy game. Right. And so it has a very different tone, uh, just by virtue of having voices attached to it than the previous games did. And it's funny because that anecdote is one that a lot of gamers know. And part of the value they recognize in final fantasy X. I almost felt playing nine like it was part of that same story and game history in the sense that because it was the last one that was coming out before voice acting and it could become that much more realistic with voice acting, I felt like nine was instead leaning back much more on like the literary aspects of game storytelling where it, you know, it superimposes texts. It jumps between characters thoughts and what they're saying and has many theatrical aspects that it's, it's harder to represent if you're trying to do something that's true to life in the sense that something voice acted might be. Um, So I think that gives it its own special flavor, but, but you're right. I think even though, part of that special character comes from the fact that it was right before voice acting, just the advent of voice acting and how exciting it was, I think overshadowed it in many regards. I think that that's a really interesting look at final fantasy nine as kind of um, the end of an era, but also calling back to the era that preceded it. And I really, this is what I kind of want to dive into with your article in particular, because when you and I were talking about it before you had written the article, we talked a lot about um, the the Shakespearean illusions in the game and the greater theatricality of it, but primarily that um, it really does do interesting things with what it means to take on a role, whether that's as an actor or as a player or you know wherever the two shall meet. Yeah. And I I do think that the um, superimposition of different text or how the dialogue is being presented. Um, it, I don't know that it would work as well if it were voiced because it's, it plays 
such a big role in making the player think about her experience with the words that she's reading and who's mm-hmm. supposed to be voicing them, but isn't. There's a lot of really interesting things going on there. So is, is that what caught your eye at first with this? Or how did you, how did you start this idea for your article? I think that's part of what I discovered. It's funny. I, I well, I, I know you oftentimes get this with articles too. I don't know if, if other people uh, approach game analysis in this way, but I started with a, a particular puzzle or something I found that was interesting that wasn't necessarily about that role-playing dynamic that you just discussed, but teasing apart that puzzle led very naturally to those role-playing dynamics where, you know, especially given my own history and interest in games, I, I found myself saying like, oh yeah, that's, it's obvious that that's what I would have been interested in the whole time. Right. So I kind of found it in a roundabout way. Um, I think you're totally right, by the way, just as an aside, and we can come back to this, that many of these dynamics wouldn't have worked as well in a, in a post um, voice acting era. Right. Uh, it's funny because Max on the, on with the terrible fate pretty recently wrote this article on flavor text and earthbound. And it's something I think about very similarly, right? Because that game does really interesting storytelling things with just the uh, text boxes that come up to color your interactions with the worlds. And I feel like those things um, are kind of artifacts of game history. Now they still come up in particular genres, but I think the, the normal expectations for, you know, a big blockbuster game now are focusing on things like verisimilitude and and making you feel as if the environment is really true to life and authentic in a way that um, those more literary aspects naturally draw away from because they are more theatrical and point you to the artifice of your experience, right? Uh, and I think you see a lot of the the same things going on in Final Fantasy IX. It's funny actually. Um, you know, I use these great um, like text dumps that players will do oftentimes when I'm doing research for these games. Um, so we should find the actual person to shout out. But this absolute superhero has posted on GameFAQs.com like all of the dialogue uh, and even descriptions of the oh, like, sure. cutscenes that happen in Final Fantasy IX. So those are great resources when you're trying to search for particular quotes or, or text or things like that. But actually, uh, one of the things that underscores this point in Final Fantasy IX is in the um, the penultimate like cutscene sequence in the game um, before you go back to the play. I want to be your canary to kind of round out the story. If memory serves, I think this is where this is, but basically as the game is winding down, you have this really interesting mode of presentation where you get that white text against a black screen, where the idea seems to be that, different party members are talking about the impact that Zidane, the main character, had on them. Uh, but because of that mode of presentation, it's really hard to tell. And there's some debate about which characters are actually speaking these different things. And, you know, is, is it all Vivi expressing his point of view? Is it the different party members talking at different times? And and that kind of interpretive necessity is, is simply not something you would get if those lines were voiced. It would be a very clear cut and dry answer. Right? It, it does. It does make it. <laughs> I think a more um, a more introspective experience because as you're saying that I'm thinking of um, the uh, the ending of Persona Four um, and Golden Two. Uh, there's a moment where you know it's a, it's a very anime moment where the main character is kind of out for the count and all of the people that you've made connections with sort of show up physically and urge you on, but they're all voiced, yep. and so it does feel more like you have, okay, well, this, this character in particular, like Dojima is actually talking to me right now. So I can interpret that as the relationship between these two characters is X and therefore it's making this ending very impactful. Mm -hmm. But the, the scene that you're describing, because the interpretation is left up to us, it does give it a kind of, um, reading a script quality. And, and by that, I mean, when you're reading a a Shakespeare play, you're not necessarily thinking of, oh, this person would be acting and saying it this way. You're reading it as a text. And I do think that that, that changes how you perceive the story because it's all coming from you at that point. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And you know, the more I was looking at and thinking about Final Fantasy IX, the more I at least feel like the really compelling and interesting through line that that unifies the whole game is that exact kind of theatricality 
that you're talking about, right? In, in terms of what inspired me to write this and, and dig into this analysis in the first place, um, it was really Necron, right? The the final boss. Um, I think for two reasons, right? One is especially in JRPGs and more broadly in how I think about storytelling, like the way in which they end and especially like the culmination of their themes in the last boss, I think is a really powerful way into interpreting the overall themes of the work. And, uh, you know, those, those finales can really color your understanding of the entire journey that the characters have been on up to that point, even if there's not some, you know, radical reveal or plot twist that happens associated, um, with, with the final boss. Right. And then secondly, of, of course, for people who know final fantasy nine, this, this has kind of changed in recent times, which I think is interesting, but historically Necron has been treated and understood as just this crazy non sequitur, right? Where you have this, you know, very traditional JRPG adventure where there are wars between different kingdoms. And then it turns out that there's this guy, Kuja, who's trying to, you know, basically incite war for his own ends. And then it turns out there's this other planet, Terra, that's trying to basically assimilate the, the planet of the main story, Gaia, in order to reconstitute the souls of, of its people. So, you know, very standard JRPG yeah. stuff. Normal um, stuff. Yeah, you know, reg- regular things like that. Uh, but then after fighting Kuja in this grand finale, right, um, this kind of otherworldly god, Necron, manifests and says, basically, it's my job to take this back to the the zero world and basically annihilate all concepts. Uh, and he, he makes this really kind of chilling speech uh, advocating for that uh, and and why that's the only kind of possible path for um, for anyone to find fulfillment is to not exist at all and not to have existed in the first place, right? And so especially uh, after all of the plot that's led up to that point, which because it's a JRPG has been tens and tens of hours, that kind of final turn to Necron can be very hard to understand. But the more I was thinking about it and and trying to map out Necron uh, as something that was coherent with the rest of the story, the more I felt like it, you could actually cast it as a really interesting culmination of these theatrical themes that are woven throughout the piece, but not just theater for the sake of theater, theater as a way of encouraging the player to probe this really human and emotionally salient idea of how is it possible to act authentically uh, if your actions are artificial or your motivations are at risk of being artificial. Right. Um, and the more kind I was the, thinking about, yeah, sorry, but the, the no, idea no, of kind good. of imbuing artifice with meaning, this I think is, is a larger yeah. point in the story, right? It's exactly that point. And I think, you know, part of what I sketch out in the article is basically a a path to helping the player to find and advocate for artifice and meaning, or excuse me, meaning and artifice rather, uh, in a, in a very robust and like step-by-step way that I really haven't seen in a lot of other games. Because if if you look at this game, I, I really think part of why people find it convoluted is that it has all of these different threads going on that are interwoven in a in a very not obvious way, uh, but that all serve this broader theme, right? I mean, you start out with uh, a stage play, the staging of this fictional play, I Want to Be Your Canary, uh, which immediately brings in these themes of artifice and a, a fictional play being used for ulterior motives, which is a theme you often get in Shakespeare, right? Uh, and in this case, you know, um, Zidane and his theater troupe are trying to use the play as a pretense to, to capture Princess Garnet, right? But then as, as you set off on your adventure, the themes are taken up in first human and then much more metaphorical ways. We immediately see characters like Princess Garnet struggling with their own identities and being fit into roles that they maybe don't understand or don't know how to relate to or simply don't want to be a part of. And and they feel that lack of agency. And that's something that is very you know, emotionally salient and, and we can connect to as players, right? And it gives us a basis for then moving to more metaphorical meditations on the same ideas, right? So beyond just being in a role you're not comfortable with, well, what if your entire 
existence was literally artificial and you were constructed like Vivi, you know, so memorably struggles with over the course of the game, looking at himself and his fellow black mages uh, to the point that he ultimately has to choose his own motivation in spite of that artifice, right? Only then to reach, you know, Zidane's understanding and revelation that his entire purpose for being and directive was this, you know, completely to him alien motivation of Terra to, to subsume Gaia uh, and, and reclaim their planetary cycle for the sake of Terra's souls. Right. And so after like, again, tens of hours of playing this game uh, and, you know, guiding Zidane through these theatrical motions, you, the player realize along with Zidane that, that what he's been, uh, designed to do has basically nothing to do with what he cares about. He has to come to grips with that, right? Uh, in much the same way, by the way, as as Kuja, basically a, another version of Zidane, has to do on on the villain side, right? And so I think when you have this path through the game and thinking about the way it interweaves the the emotional salience of these really interestingly filled out characters with these themes of artifice, then I think by the time you reach Necron it's it's much less of a non sequitur and more of um to to use an insight that uh, our fellow analyst adam had which i think is is really on the nose and i point out in the article less of a non sequitur and more of a deus ex machina right in the traditional again theatrical sense of a god being introduced in the later stages of a plot in order to resolve something right and i think you know, thinking about as I do the player as this kind of external agent that acts upon the world of a game, it almost becomes a confrontation less between Necron and Zidane and more between Necron and the player, these two different entities that are on the outside of this theater looking in something like an audience member, something like a director, and arguing about the value of all of this artificial stuff that just happened, right? And the great point, um, that the player is able to make, I think, merely by virtue of having played the game up to this point, is they're able to assert in the face of Necron, well, these experiences that I've had with these fictional characters are intrinsically artificial. That's just what a fiction is. But I have I've I've had real emotions for them and I've had real value in them. I've I've logged them in my book of memory to to crib Shakespeare again, uh, mm-hmm. merely through the save mechanics of the game. And so I think that can end up being less of this weird final flourish of a JRPG and more of something that's really emotionally moving as a way that, that gets you the player to connect with and and understand these themes in a way that's like very cerebral and philosophical, but also really visceral by virtue of, of connecting with the content of the characters lives so much. Well, it's interesting to me. And I think that you outlined that very well in the article um, and sort of how it, it progresses through those steps. Like you said, to the point where I think the Necron inclusion, far from being something confusing that comes in at the last moment, is really the bow on the entire game. And I think, yeah. for for me anyway, what I and we you you talk about this in your um, Xenoblade Chronicles two article as well, um, Plato Blade as we call it <laughs> with each other, um, <laughs> yes. where it is kind of like okay, well we've we've sowed all the seeds of the point of the game, and here comes this. A uh, magnificent force at the end of it to embody that question, and Necron is that in a really great and I think succinct way. And I think that um, it's very cool of Final Fantasy IX to deliberately sow the seeds of all of this theatricality and artifice, and then at the end of it, almost have like, and this is something you and I have not talked about, but have like a cynic come in. <laughs> That's kind of what yep. Necron is, is a cynical force to say, this is meaningless. What have you done? You know, this mm-hmm. is all the, the only way that you can, you know, that, that line that you, you reference where it's the only way that purpose can possibly exist is if you don't have it in the first place, <laughs> like right. it's really, really just dark and, and, uh, kind of frankly, lame way of viewing the narrative. <laughs> um, and, uh, I think it's, it's like somebody, um, if you're, if you're, you know, we're both, we're both big matrix fans. Right. And it's like, if right. somebody were, if you and I were arguing about 
the uh, the architect's speech in The Matrix Reloaded, and yep. then somebody somebody comes up to us and says, "You know, it's just a movie, right?" That's Necron, <laughs> <laughs> that and it's like, "Yeah, I know, but I'm I'm extracting meaning from these relationships that I formed and this experience that I had." Yep. And I think it's it's very cool that uh, the last game of this era, the sort of PlayStation era or the Super Nintendo era whatever you want to call it, Final Fantasy 1 through 9, mm-hmm. um, asks the question at the end, uh, was there any meaning to it? And I think the answer by beating Necron is, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's funny because, uh, you know, there, there are cottage industries for all of the lore analysts online who try to find connections between things. And unsurprisingly, with something as tempting and mysterious as, as Necron, they try to find connections between him and other things in the game. But I actually think the degree to which he's removed from everything that's going on and, and can serve that role of kind of the, the outside cynic or the player's shadow or whatever you want to call it is, is part of what makes him so meaningful. And also like something that is so easy to knock down when you finally arrive at it after everything you've been through in the game. Right. It, it's funny because I, I call this article, the path to Necron. Right. And I had initially started writing it, like I mentioned, because I was really interested in um, analyzing Necron as something that was coherent with the broader story of the game. But then if you actually look at the article, like, you know, 90, maybe 95% of the article is about everything else that happens in the game. And I myself was like surprised with how little I ended up writing about Necron by the time I got to the end, because it is like by, by the time you've reached that point as a player and engaged with all of these themes that challenge your understandings of the relationship between meaning and artifice, it's just such a natural and easy thing to respond to Necron's challenge. Like it's natural that he would make it at that point, but it's also almost hollow at that point in the sense of like in true to JRPG form, right? Like the player is so like philosophically and emotionally beefed up at that point by the journey. Like (laughs) the the players, like the players are level 99, like thinker and relationship builder at that point in, uh, in final fantasy nine. So (laughs) like Necron can pose that challenges, but that dude doesn't have a chance. He doesn't know what he's going up against. (laughs) But that's a, that's a great point too, because um, JRPGs do this very frequently. I mentioned persona earlier. Persona is a great, uh, example of this as well, like any, any one of them really, um, where you're right. It's, uh, it's a question that kind of answers itself before it's asked because Mm -hmm. through the journey, the 95%, like you were talking about, that meaning is self-evident because you continued through the story and you, you connected with these people. So when a character or a force or an antagonist at the end of it, kind of asks this big philosophical question. I think it, it is it is cool that by that point you've done all the thinking. So the answer yeah. is very easy and it does kind of boil down to we just got to beat this guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that if if Necron showed up like in the first scene and posed the question does uh, you know does or or posed his argument that nothing has meaning uh, that exists, right? Then I do right. think it would be a very different game because you'd be thinking about that from the start. And you're like, I, I, we're jumping into the deep end here. I don't really yeah. know how to how to approach this. But you kind of get the tools through the journey to approach it. Well, and if you saw Necron at the beginning of the journey, I think the game would fall into uh, a much more common category of game, which is much more self conscious about breaking the fourth wall and making the player think about her interactions. I talk about this a little in the article, but I think one of the challenges that we see people wrestle with in modern video game storytelling is, you know, there's this understood sense in which video games are interactive. And so the player is doing things as she's going through the game and those things have meaning. And and I think a lot of storytellers want in one way or another to talk about the meaning of those actions and, you know, ascribe different things to the player um, because of all the reasons that that's so interesting, right? I mean, focusing on that interactivity is a big part of what we do on with a terrible fate, right? But often there's, there's this challenge or element that you get in that kind of storytelling where as soon as that fourth wall is broken, 
it kind of distances the player from the emotional content of the story itself, because now you're thinking less about the characters uh, with whom you're engaging as works of fiction. And you're thinking more about the fiction itself and the fact that you're this real person who's going at it from the outside, right? Think about something like, um, like an easy toy example is the Stanley parable, right? It's like, it's, it's the king of fourth wall breaking. Right. But even something like Bioshock, right? Bioshock is great. But I think part of what people find so remarkable about the pivotal twist in it with, you know, a man chooses a slave obeys is the fact that it so thoroughly wrenches you out of the story and makes you think more about the the level uh, on which you're engaging it as a real person who's who's controlling a character. Right. Here, here's the key difference. Right. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the Bioshock example is that um, that is at once a very um a very in narrative conversation that is very easily easily interpreted by the player as a direct conversation to her right mm-hmm. where but it still feels consonant with the story and i think that what you were getting at before the kind of like when games break the fourth wall it can be kind of funny but i do think that tongue in cheek that tongue in cheek attitude can really it, it does. It serves too many masters and ends up uh, just alienating you a lot of the time because you feel disconnected from the characters, from the story. You're aware of your, uh, you're you're aware of the artifice in a way that yeah. Final Fantasy IX does not do. Where Necron, at the end of it, feels very consonant with the rest of the story. It doesn't. I, I think that you know you mentioned earlier that people have this thought that it it kind of comes out of nowhere. And, you know, I, I guess I just never felt that where maybe because of my history with Final Fantasy, where there is always a big or bad at the end of it. But I mean, even now, kind of looking back on it, uh, when when something like that happens, it doesn't really take me out of the story or break my connection to the to the uh, ideas that are being espoused. Mm-hmm. It just kind of puts it all front and center where it may have been subtle before. I think Final Fantasy as a series does a much better job with that in terms of keeping you engaged with the story while going to new heights of metaphysical convolution. Uh, I think it does that better than a lot of other stories. That's the subtitle for 16, I think. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. But yeah, I'm even thinking of, you know, you know how much we love to drag on the, the Final Fantasy 13 series, but even something like, um, like the final, final fight in 13-2 where the, the chaos Bahamuts like emerge from, from Caius's heart and you have to fight them in this like totally abstract space, right? Like if, if we wanted to, you know, rub our two brain cells together and come up with something, <laughs> it's like, it's very clear how that could be interpreted symbolically in, in a way that would end up being consonant with the story, right? Um, which is not always the case in video game stories, but I think that Final Fantasy traditionally does that very well, right? I think even the the other example I mentioned in the article, which you know not everyone may agree with me on, but I was thinking even of contrasting Nine with something like Undertale, right? Because oh, sure. Undertale does have memorable characters, and many people are very attached to those characters, and so in that way, it's similar to Nine, and it also has these various ways in which it directly like very directly engages with the player right again not dissimilar to nine but i think there is a difference in the sense that when undertale engages and directly addresses the player it can really draw you away from those characters right so that even if you end up still having an attachment to the to the characters those two interests of considering yourself the player and considering the characters are always opposing forces wrestling for your attention right and i think that's something that often happens with games that address the player directly and that's really that that was it was not my primary focus going into this article but something that i ended up loving about the exact way in which Final Fantasy IX teases out these themes of finding meaning despite artifice is I think it does a great job moving from the framing of the story with another play being staged within it through these emotional motions with coming to understand the characters and then into more metaphorical territory, all within the conceit of these very theatrical themes of actually meditating on the right kind of thematic content, um, 
on the level of characters as well as the level of metaphor and metaphysics to get the player involved in caring about these things, not in spite of the characters or in spite of the story, but in fact, precisely because of them, right? So that your last assertion as a player to Necron as something that is very self-involved and self-referential considering the player is actually an assertion precisely of the meaning that you've found in these characters. So that those fourth wall breaking and character investment attributes are actually supplementing each other in this really beautiful way rather than being things that you need to consider as antithetical to one another. I I completely agree. And I think that the, the really nice thing about Final Fantasy IX, and I think really, I, I would even say this series as a whole, even in all the directions that it's gone recently, um, uh, like we've, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to linger too much on this because this would be an entirely different podcast, but looking at Final Fantasy VII Remake and how it is even in that game that is so, I think we would both agree, explicitly self-referential. Yeah. It it never feels like it's Deadpool talking to the camera. <laughs> it totally. it always feels as if it is part of the story that is being told. And I think that that is really where my cynicism comes into things because Undertale, I think, walks a good a fine line. And I think because it's it's um presented as a joke to begin with the game is very funny i do think that it kind of rides that line a bit better but Mm -hmm. there are plenty of games movies books i mean we live in a world of uh of meta commentary that is just so uninteresting because all it's doing is calling out what it's doing and that's not that's not saying anything so when final fantasy 9 says something i think very profound in the way that it addresses artifice and talks about the meaning that we put behind role playing it it works so much better because of this of the setup that it gives itself and the world it creates such that even necron this otherworldly almost lovecraftian force that comes in at the end still feels like a part of the universe that it's created well and dan you know for for listeners who don't know you and i actually met back in high school doing theater together and we both did a Mm -hmm. hell of a lot of theater and i think this is one place where video games can really learn from other media uh in terms of how they tell their stories um especially theater because like (laughs) can you imagine how weird it would be if you know in Macbeth when he's like doing one of his soliloquies he like walks out and says man you know isn't it weird that I'm talking right to you, the audience, even though you're watching my life unfold, but like the, yeah. the idea of engaging <laughs> the, obnoxious. the audience. Direct, yeah. Right. It'd be like, yeah. what the hell are you talking about? Um, but that notion of soliloquy, right. Which is so common in, in a lot of theatrical storytelling, but especially in Shakespeare, like characters all the time have this mechanism of sharing their thoughts and views with the audience in a way that is intimate and relates to the audience, but really doesn't break the fourth wall despite breaking it and and keeps the audience and even makes them more engaged with the story right and i think one of my persistent frustrations through the years which maybe we're now starting to move beyond in video game storytelling in, in terms of how we think about it but it it's frustrated me to see this kind of preconceived notion in in the modern landscape of video game storytelling where a game can only be you know, talking about or referencing the actions of the player, if they explicitly call out the player in that kind of Undertale way or like the joke Macbeth way. Because I think, you know, by virtue of video games being interactive, I think it's always the case that the player's involvement constitutes part of the story. And Final Fantasy IX, a game which, by the way, is pretty old. It's not like it's not a new innovation. And if anything, maybe its its innovative nature has been buried under more modern video game tropes, right? But it says, you know, look, look at all these robust ways you can involve the player. Uh in the stories of the characters through their interactions and make those interactions meaningful without ever doing anything like Macbeth saying, Hey audience, I'm talking to you. Isn't that weird? Wink. Yeah. I yeah, think wink, uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and we, we've talked about uh, Vonnegut before, and I know, you know, we've talked about uh, Sirens of Titan, but there's, mm-hmm. there's a, 
a book that I love. It's maybe my favorite Vonnegut book, The Breakfast of Champions. Um, mm-hmm. And we've talked about, I, I've told you this before, where there is a moment in it where Kurt Vonnegut is writing about himself as a character, talking to himself, the narrator. And I think that the difference between uh, insight and self-indulgence is how resonant that moment is with the entire theme of the story. Mm. So in this moment, he's having basically just a philosophical conversation with himself about his mother's proclivities for mental illness and how that may affect him. And the entire book is about mental illness. So instead of seeming like this wacky moment, Vonnegut uses an intensely personal thing to call out that this is all fake to make it that much more real. Yeah. And I, I think that that is so, you mentioned how nine is not an, a new story. Well, breakfast of champions is not a new book. <laughs> so it's yeah. not like these are, these are brand new ideas, but I, I do think that certain media, they, people who maybe create stories will look at things like that and really appreciate the feeling that it gives them, but misinterpret it and say, and re- think that the, the meta, aspect of it is the the cool thing. Yeah. And so I'm not going to talk about Rick and Morty, but I'm just going to say <laughs> it <laughs> because it's very different from something like Final Fantasy IX, which does call attention to it, but never in an obnoxious Macbeth, Macbeth winking at the audience way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could be another podcast that no one, not even I would want to listen to just ranting about <laughs> Rick and Morty, but... <laughs> point taken yeah I mean, you're right and not to not to raise the specter of final fantasy 7 remake again but i think i don't know it's interesting you know more globally about the final fantasy series than i do dan but i'll tell you even after having played seven and remake and now playing nine i look at a lot of the common complaints in the discourse about remake and i find myself thinking like I wonder how many of those people have played Final Fantasy IX because I feel like the nuance with which Final Fantasy VII Remake addresses a lot of these same self-referential things and the expectations of the player and things like that, um, it seems to be coming from a heritage that's much more nine than seven, which I think is really interesting. Mm. And I think if you have a language for understanding that and contextualizing it like you were saying contextualizing it within the themes of the source work of final fantasy 7 i mean i think that's a lot of what our work analyzing that game has has focused on and i think my conclusion at least has been that it ends up being a a really fascinating and rewarding beast unto itself this remake uh, by virtue of the exact way in which it combines those different facets right but if you if you don't have that kind of language or kind of common understanding of of ways in which the player can be involved going into remake it it can be really jarring right and i think especially because it's it's less subtly interwoven throughout the work than something like final fantasy 9 manages um if you don't have a a more subtle example to point to uh, you can end up feeling pretty disoriented and adrift by it well i do think there's something to that because you when looking at Final Fantasy as a broad series, I do think that every game, every every main game in the series will kind of do this moment of pulling the rug out from under you and giving you this other boss at the end of it, sort of like Necron. Like Final Fantasy X does it with Yu Yevon. Um, Six does it in a way with Kefka, um, just because of how he's presented throughout the mm-hmm. rest of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there. I've I've talked about four and how um, Golbez is really the bad guy, but not really at the end. You know, there's all these right. there's all these examples of it, and I think that maybe the key to seven and why nine is so linked to it is that seven Se- Sephiroth isn't Sephiroth. <laughs> It, he, the mm. bad guy isn't Se- it's not sephiroth right it's what sephiroth means to cloud and what sephiroth means to cloud is deep trauma and loss and so 
I think seven maybe comes off a, bl- a bit clearer to people because Sephiroth is the bad guy all throughout it, right? There is no last moment switcheroo where somebody else comes into it. It's always Sephiroth. So it feels very yeah. personal. And I think that the kind of interesting thing that maybe Necron would be the the key to, to understanding this is that um, to me, I don't think there's a functional difference between those two villains um, in terms of what they represent to the theming of the story, right? Where this, this final fight at the end of it is a representation of some internal struggle, either through a character, through the player, or through some mix of the two of them. Mm-hmm. So when Remake comes out and it throws Sephiroth you know, in the in it throws it at the player in Midgar, and every player is saying, "Wait a minute, Sephiroth doesn't show up here." I think there is some sort of dissonance where it's almost like the people who say, "What the hell is Necron doing here?" I don't understand, right? Mm, and i no. i don't want to I don't want to come off as gatekeepy or intellectual about it, but I do think that if you kind of look at it like take take your connection, your personal connection away for a moment. And just look at what, just ask the question, why is this happening right now? <laughs> what is right. the rest of the game said? And I think that that makes everything make a lot more sense. It's funny too. Um, I just had this thought as we were exploring the connections between games, which, which had never occurred to me before, but the, like the whispers in final fantasy seven remake, uh, you know, the, the first article I wrote about that game was, looking at the whispers and especially the, the whisper arbiter as uh, basically a representation of the, the player of final fantasy sevens expectations of how things are supposed to go and how that interacts with the theme specifically of remake and, and what the player of remake wants. Uh, but, but in this vein that we're talking about um, the whispers and especially the whisper arbiter are almost like the anti Necron, right? Like as opposed mm. to trying to, annihilate this fiction because of its inherent artifice and that threat to meaning, which would be Necron's thing. Instead, the whispers are, are trying to reinforce the fiction that has come before and hold it up as the single canonical evolution of events and, and work to reinforce that despite the efforts of the player. So I, that, that might be another article in the future, but I think it, it could be really interesting to read it through that, um, lens of of these two like anti-parallel modes of engagement with the player that we get at the end of those games yeah that's i i think so and i think that uh that would be an interesting article down the line for sure is the even even just maybe not even necron in particular but kind of comparing the final final fantasy bosses and you know how they on a scale of do they stick out like a sore thumb or not, and then unraveling <laughs> whether or not they actually do. Well, I think um, uh, what I would like to do, especially with this this series um, of kind of director's commentary on these articles, is you kind of mentioned a few things, but with our last uh, few minutes here, I wanted to pick your brain. What are so the the article is up? Everybody should read it. Um, I think Aaron does a really great job of explaining why this seemingly strange figure is actually the most uh, sensible end to this story. Um, but as we all know, when we're putting these articles together, a lot of things are on the cutting room floor or there are avenues that we didn't explore, things that maybe caught our attention that didn't fit in with the broader um, argument we were making. So just to kind of round us out, was there anything about Final Fantasy IX that you thought maybe connected to this article but didn't, or something that you wanted to touch on but didn't have the time? Anything like that? It's a good question. Um, you know, fans or followers of With a Terrible Fate will probably know that when we talk about storytelling in video games, it's much broader than anything like just characters and plots. I mean, obviously, we've been sitting here talking about player interactivity as part of story for the better part of an hour, right? Um, but I think I think Final Fantasy IX is also one of those games where the different modes of gameplay also really naturally feed into these themes in super interesting ways. Everything from like 
the perspective through which you see the world, which is very theatrical, almost as if you're looking upon a stage, to things like trance, which I think is a, a fascinating mechanic in terms of how your antagonistic relationships to other creatures can lead you to access a more authentic self. And I did wish I could get a little bit more into trance. I talk about it a little in the article, um, but I feel like there's more to do there. Uh, in earlier iterations, I was playing around with like, well, what would it mean for the player to have a trance? And like, is, is Necron maybe like, something to do with the player like being pushed into a trance state so i don't know if there's something there um, i think you could do an interesting breakdown of um the different limit break mechanics in final fantasy and how they uh absolutely how they resonate with the themes because you, you did kind of touch on that yeah. with your chadley article no you're completely limits, right right and uh, I, I actually, I think I talked a little bit with Adam about that when I was thinking about trance, because you're right. Like every every Final Fantasy game has something like that. But I think especially looking at nine versus seven, like the notion of what it is to break through one's limits versus to go into a trance and somehow a- access some deeper aspect of yourself. Like mechanically between those two games, those things are pretty similar. But in terms of the way in which they're described and how they serve the themes, they're so different and essential to the the different titles to which they belong and i think that is really cool and yeah you're right i, I talked about it a little in in remake and the the chadley interpretation of that uh i i think one of the other things that i i wished i'd gone into a little more is um final fantasy 9 to me is is one of those really cool games that gets away with having a true ensemble cast. And I talked about that a little bit at PAX because, you know, of course, Sedan is the main character, but he's not the main character in the way someone like Cloud is a main character, right? right? Like, I think this is really a game where part of what gets you so emotionally attached to these characters and thereby able to see the value of the fiction while still engaging with these metafictional themes is the fact that each one of those characters goes through really distinctive journeys where they're learning about themselves, but also those threads are interwoven in all the ways we've been talking about throughout this conversation. Right. And so I, I don't talk about every single one of the characters in this article. Um, I thought about and regret a little uh, overlooking, especially Freya um, because I think she's, she's really interesting. Um and I think there's an interesting thread in there um, that one of our former analysts, Nate, actually mentioned to me a little bit after I published this, um, where if you're going through this Alenkis that I outlined in the article of you know different challenges to the ability to, to find meaning in the face of artifice, there is this thread throughout the game that I didn't really consider of what do you do when you found an authentic purpose, but then it's lost for some reason Mm -hmm. and Freya and her, her whole kingdom of Bermesia, you know, the kingdom where it's always reigned and it's always just been devastated is, is very deeply symbolic of and resonant with that. And so I think there could be some really interesting meditations there. And then, you know, similarly, the, the next non sequitur challenge um, after dealing with Necron would be, you know, Quina, the uh, mysterious <laughs> creature who seems to care a lot about frogs and not much about anything else besides eating. Um, because I, I, I think you could find a way, uh, you know, if you really worked at it to fit Quina into this framework. But uh, as with all of those kind of weird, I don't want to say sideshow, but let's say off the beaten path, Phoebe and Friends style characters in, in Final <laughs> Fantasy games. It's a little less obvious how Queena fits in. And so that would be an interesting challenge as well. <laughs> yeah, that that would be a fun article to kind of the odd odd man, odd character out character um in in games and sort of what they what they represent. That would be a fun one. Yeah, the the Phoebe of Final Fantasy games. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Or oh my god, think of um because this is tangentially related to Xenoblade, like Ricky and the whole, you know, oh, silly yeah. sideshow Napun race. Um, so it's it's definitely a trope. And I, I do think, you know, it's easy to laugh at. I, I think exactly in the way we're talking about final bosses, oftentimes if you break it down, you, you can find thematically meaningful reasons that they're in there. But it uh, it it is hard to look past the uh, not-so-gentle comedy of the situation. And yeah, right. To that. Well... I think uh, it's a it's a really fantastic article about um, I mean about a lot of things, but I think 
generally speaking, it's uh, I, I would consider this your sequel to your your Plato Blade article in a lot of ways because I do think, and when we were talking about it, sort of before you put pen to paper on it, um, this does seem to be it's it's enough of a trope in JRPG circles and discussion about JRPGs, I should say, that um, you know you you start thinking like, all right, but wait a minute, not every final boss is totally out of left field. Like you can't just say blanket jrpgs have nonsensical final bosses it's not fair because there's there's got to be something going on it's like not every stephen king book ends terribly like let's stop (laughs) (laughs) you know yes so i i do i do appreciate the the steps as you outline them and and the um analysis of what i think is a a very beautifully subtle story about what it means to engage with uh, a role-playing game so it's very, hard very though well I mean, we've we've talked about the length of jrpgs on the site i have an article on that in the past and i think you know to the credit of a lot of gamers and i've been in this position you know you, you want to trust in the creators of these games that they have a single coherent vision for them but mm. then especially when the game stretches on for you know 60 or 80 hours and goes so many different places from very personal struggles to geopolitical challenges to metaphysical confrontations against gods it's really hard to hold all of that in your head at once and see how it is connected and so even if you're acting in good faith i can totally understand how you get to the end of these games and especially if you started it like months in the past feel like that finale is coming out of left field right and so i think i think that's why it's all the more important to do this work of stepping back and looking at the overall picture i had that i had that thought earlier in this discussion where thinking about um you know, a kid playing Final Fantasy Nine, and really taking a year to be, yeah. and at the end of that, thinking like, who is this person? And you know, I uh, this is something that maybe I'll revisit in a canon article. But I love the Legend of Dragoon; it's one of my favorite games. Yeah. And I was pretty harsh on the ending in my canon article. Because <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, I, I was talking about how it came out of left field, and this discussion makes me want to go back and say, like, did it actually though, or is there <laughs> is there a lot of connections that I didn't miss because it took me as a kid a year and a half to beat it? You know, I think at minimum those questions are a great way to to push our passion for video game stories further right because you know we we often talk about and wonder like what's the best way into thinking about these games and when something seems puzzling or as you say out of left field like a jrpg final boss if you put in the work to think about the overall picture of the game like either you might end up seeing it in a whole new way or you you might come to the conclusion that yes it is out of left field but that will also i i can guarantee generate new insights that you didn't have about the story before i will say you know for for my part in final fantasy 9 i actually did put it down for like a number of months in the middle of playing it just because uh i I think scarlet nexus came out in the middle or something so i picked up that instead um but part of what I thought was really cool about it and what made me want to focus on the idea that it's like leading and tricking the player into making an argument is that maybe this is an experience just I had, but hopefully other players can relate to it. Despite the game having gone so many different places and despite how long it took me to play it, by the time I defeated Necron and I saw that um, reprise of I want to be your canary, I really did feel like very personally and emotionally satisfied that I had did some, I had done something that honored those characters and, and made a point against Necron. And I think even games that are well articulated and cohesive in their theming don't always make it the case that the player has that level of personal satisfaction with her involvement in the themes. And so I think that's, that's really cool and something that I would use to hold up final fantasy nine as a model for things we'll hopefully see in the future. I love it. And yeah, I think, uh, we should definitely, I mean, there's more articles incoming as always. Um, I'll be jumping up, jumping up, starting up <laughs> by jumping, um, my, uh, my Canon series again, um, with a, with a article that will be very personal to me as well. Um, and I think, uh, I, it's a feeling that I share with you where it was a game that I put down and then I came back and, felt like I really, 
you know, did something for those characters in a, in an interesting way. So um, I won't I won't tease too much more of it, but I do want to round out by saying um, I'm uh, very excited to have this uh, go on because this is my favorite thing to do about our articles is talking to the people who wrote them. And so listener, please listener listeners, please. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the singular, the, the Royal <laughs> listener, um, please uh, do look back for whenever we, whenever we have articles um, and our written content being put up on the website, we are going to be doing some version of this where one of us will interview the other, or maybe one of us will interview another author um, and uh, kind of pick their brain and uh, give you a nice companion piece to the article um, so that you can round out your, uh, your reading of it and maybe start thinking about putting your own pen to paper um, and grappling with these same thoughts that we talked about here. So Aaron, thank you for joining me. Um, looking forward to more of these. Anything you want to say as we, as we head out? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. Part of what inspired the very first version of this podcast, the drawing board was to show our thought processes behind these because the, the most exciting part of all this to me really always has just been creating a more robust language to understand and talk about these video game stories that we love so much uh, with other gamers. Right. And so hopefully listening to and engaging with and, and asking questions of podcasts and conversations like this uh, can encourage you listeners to see this as, as something that, as Dan says, you can do, right? It's, it's just a way of reading these games that we, we all love so much. There's nothing mysterious or black box about it. It's just giving them the credit they're due and, and digging into what makes them so special and powerful. So cheers to that and looking forward to doing it uh, again and again in the future. Cheers indeed. Well, look out for the next one, listener. Uh, listen, I keep doing that. I'm thinking of the royal <laughs> listener. Like I'm talking well, it, to. It, it is an article about Socrates, right? So maybe we're just thinking of a single <laughs> interlocutor listening to us. <laughs> Grab your hemlock, everybody. All right. <laughs> oh, God. Uh-oh. What a note to end on. Uh, it's one I was going to say now we need a palate cleanser, but I feel like that makes the joke worse as opposed to better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thank you, guys.